First Peter three, verse eight and nine. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Verse 10, for the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's ask the Lord to help us one more time. Father, again, we come to your holy word this morning and just reminded of the passage in Isaiah that says that the high and lofty one looks down on those that are humble and who tremble at his word. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be the ones that are humble this morning, that um, have hearts and, and mindsets and attitudes that want to receive from you the word implanted. Lord, what an amazing gift we have in your scriptures They are holy scriptures. There is no other scripture, no other holy book like the one we have. It is the God of all books. And Lord, it's your mind, it's your very heart revealed. And again, Lord, pray that we would take these things and make them our own for your glory and the good of your church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so verse 8, verse 8, so far, we've looked at several terms here, and My purpose has been to take each one of these terms and sort of take them out and have us look at them from from multiple angles because I want us to appreciate these terms. These are God's terms after all. He personally, by the Spirit, put them here for us. And He put them here for us for, for, for lots of reasons, but obviously to know them, but also so that we will implement them. And as we implement them, we will do well. Um, I want a church that's healthy. I don't know about you. Um, but I do. It's interesting when pastors get together and uh, when you even maybe talk to your friends at other churches, somehow, for some reason, it always sort of comes up in the discussion how many people you have at your church. You know, it just always kind of floats up to the top. You just, it's kind of like, well, you know, how big is it or how whatever, whatever, whatever. And, um, but what's interesting is uh, conversations about, you know, the kind of love you have or the kind of friendships you have or the kind of one anothering you have. Those kinds of things don't typically come up as quick. It's usually about numbers, isn't it? It's usually about size. It's usually about the sort of outward facade of things. But Peter and the Lord Jesus and, and the Spirit of God will not have that. They are far more emphatic on creating a people of character, a people of certainly the gospel, but people who have so imbibed the gospel that they live now with gospel fruit. And that's what Peter's on about. Peter is on about these traits of being harmonious with one another, about being sympathetic, about being brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. These are the things that make or break a church. Um, You can have a lot of people in a place and ultimately um, not mean much for eternity. Um, There are there are, there are categories in the scriptures that they give us of works that men exert in church that will be burned up with wood, hay, and stubble. And so I'm not so much interested in quantity. I do want quantity. We do pray for quantity. Uh, but certainly never at the expense of quality. Never at the expense of character. 
So let's look at these, this, this, this next term that I want us to hone in on this morning, and that is the term at the end there, verse 8, humble in spirit. Humble in spirit. Last week we looked at kind-hearted. This week I want to look at humble in spirit. Um, the term itself means low or lowly. In the Old Testament, this term, at least in the Septuagint, can at time means lowlands, sort of like almost a, a term of geography. Lowlands or, or the valleys in contrast to mountains. It can mean the least, meaning sort of the least recognized or gifted. Gideon, you might remember in Judges chapter 6, where he's sort of disputing the Lord's desire to use him as a judge over Israel and a deliverer. He says his excuse is, my family is the least in Manasseh. That's this term. My family is the least, Lord. How how in the world are you going to choose from among the least in Israel to use them? And Gideon was just simply saying that he was sort of the last stock. His family was the last stock that God should choose to accomplish his grand purposes of deliverance and rule. Gideon felt insignificant, sort of in the background. Not a public or presentable figure, so to speak. So this term has to do with lowliness. Almost sort of a contentment with the background. Contentment with insignificance is this term. Not insignificance ultimately in terms of sort of a self-deprecation wallowing. But in terms of not thirsty for the limelight. It can also mean in the Old Testament crushed in spirit. The one who has sort of had their pride crushed. And the one who now knows who they really are, as desperate and needy of God's saving grace. Crushed in spirit, that's the term. Here it is in Psalm 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Those who are brought low. Their spirits are brought low. That's actually the best place you can be before a holy God. The worst place you can be is exalted and prideful, haughty in your own mind in his presence. Pride's a big deal in the Bible. Humility is that which brings the salvation of God. So these people that are crushed in spirit know they are desperate. They know all of their righteousness is outside of them. It must come from Christ. Just struck the other day thinking about Isaiah 64 again that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags when we're not in Christ. What a statement. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. I mean, you're used to seeing a place like, you know, downtown New Orleans and all of their unrighteousness being disgusting. But, the, but Isaiah says it's even the righteousness of those outside of Christ are absolutely filthy. And this shows, it shows us something of who we are by nature. And who we are by nature is a people that are ultimately prideful, a people that need to be humbled, a people who are deluded into thinking they have righteousness. It's a horrible thing. But when someone becomes humble, it means that they've actually seen who they really are. It means they've come to terms with the fact that, okay, wait, I am in desperate need of a Savior. I'm in desperate need, period. And so with this in mind, that this term humble in spirit, it has sort of an inward feature to it. It's not just somebody who is sitting in the back row, per se. It has an inward disposition, an inward attitude to it. And it's the idea that if, if there were a crowd of people, it, it's the kind of person that's not looking to stick their head above the crowd to be noticed. 
Because you don't need to, because you're inwardly secure. You know who you are. Again, not thirsty for the limelight. Um, In fact, as we're going to see, true humility is actually happy when others are helped and exalted. That's what gives them joy. So lowly of mind is the idea here. The desire to put others first, coming from an inward security, knowing who you are. That's this concept of humility. Humble in mind. And so once again, just kind of like how we did with the idea of being sympathetic and kind-hearted, looking to God himself to emulate this first as we think through it, I'd like to do this as well, looking at this idea of humility from Jesus himself. So in Matthew 11, you can turn there if you'd like, Matthew 11. Jesus is sort of frustrated, denouncing cities that he has done miracles in, denouncing Chorazin, denouncing Capernaum, Capernaum sort of his home base even, but those very towns that he ministered to and, and did miracles in, they were unrepentant, they were hardened, and he pronounces judgment on them in verse 20 through 24. And in particular, he's, I know he has in his mind these religious leaders, these elite Jews of the day, these elite religious men, very hardened in their sin. And while Jesus is frustrated and certainly denounces judgment, he also ultimately understands why they're unbelieving. And he says in verse 25, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. The wise and intelligent. We, we, we think very highly of wise and intelligent people, don't we? We think very highly of wise the, the wise men and women of academia, at least the world does, these are sort of the elites, the cream of the crop of a culture. And Jesus is saying it's the wise and intelligent that God is hiding the gospel from at some level. It's these people who don't feel they need this gospel. And Jesus says, I praise you that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Now he's not literally saying six-month-olds. He's saying to those who are children, children in terms of their own disposition toward the Father, children who understand that unless Dad gives me what I need, I don't have it. Jesus says, you've revealed them to these types. Yes, Father, for this way was pleasing in your sight. Very clear who the Lord reveals himself to. Those who who are wanting it, those who are willing to receive it, those who know that they need it. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And that would be horrible news. (laughs) But thankfully we have a Son who's kind and wants to reveal himself. And he says, and anyone to whom the Son wills, wills to reveal him. Thankfully the Son is willing to reveal the Father to us. And on this basis, Jesus cries out to those gathered. And he says this, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Weary and heavy laden. Terms of just tiredness. Languishing in your own efforts. 
day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, trying to make a life for yourself, trying to find meaning, trying to find purpose. All in all, just living in constant lostness and sin and just wandering about. And Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you the rest you really long for. He says, verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus appeals to these people based on his own character of humility, doesn't he? He appeals to them based on the fact that he is gentle and humble in heart. Take my yoke upon you because I am gentle and humble in heart. Humble in heart. Jesus says, I am actually humble through and through, humble in heart. Jesus knows this about himself. Jesus can say he is humble and it not be pride. It's not necessarily humble to say you're not, you know, you're not humble or you're just nothing or this or that. Jesus can confess the fact that he's humble and not be proud. But Jesus is not seeking man's praise to boost his ego. That's sort of what he's getting at. He's not here to boost his own ego. He is humble. He knows who he is. He is settled in his identity. And this settledness and, and, and humility issues forth, he says, in an easy yoke. One that is not heavy. One that is not cumbersome. He says, my yoke is light. And that's because it comes from a master who has a humble heart. Jesus says, I'm not an unfeeling, harsh master. A master who isn't trying to prove himself to you. A master who knows who he is. A master who knows what is best for you. A master who, if you follow him, brings you to a place of true rest. A master who truly wants what's eternally best for you. Think of, think how humble this is. Think how humble this truly is that Jesus is offering this kind of rest that only he can give to sinners. You know, normally in our society, the more important you are, the less you recognize those under you. At least those perceived to be under you. This begins in middle school, doesn't it? The cool kids... And the non-cool kids. If you're a non-cool kid, you want to be popular, and you try to get noticed by the cool kids. And just sort of a small word or a high five by the cool kid can make the non-cool kids day. I remember that very clearly. I hated that time in my life. I'm not saying it's right to want to pursue that, but... This is just the dynamic in middle school. But it's the same in society, isn't it? It's the same thing. You meet someone famous, maybe even get a picture with them. Chances are they aren't going to check back with you in a year and ask how the family's doing. Most of them don't have the time to and don't probably care to. But if they did, it'd blow your mind, wouldn't it? It'd be, oh, wow, he called me or she called me. Well, here is Jesus, the most important person in the universe. The most important person in the universe, the very one who made you 
And the very one that you reject all day, every day before you know him. And he comes to you. And he comes to you and he says, come here. He first says, come to me. That's what he says first, doesn't he? He says, come to me. I want you with me. That's amazing. Most important person in the universe says, come to me. And learn of me. Oh, he wants you to be his pupil. He wants you to, to, to take on his teaching, take on his, his words. And learn of me. Learn that I'm humble. Learn what I'm after. Be like me. He wants to give you rest. He wants you to, to remove your heavy yoke of sin and take on his easy yoke. He wants you to exchange your meaninglessness to give you purpose. And Jesus has the humility to do what it takes to gain these wonderful things for us. Um, as the writer of Hebrews says, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. That's such a wonderful thought, isn't it? You might be ashamed to call yourself a brother sometime just because of the way you just acted with your wife or with your children. But Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you brethren if you know him. He's humble. Thinking that Jesus is humble is interesting. Um, Steve pointed this out years ago. I thought it was interesting to think through, and that, and that is this, that if Jesus is humble, this means that humility isn't first about sinnerhood. In other words, if, if, you, read, if you read many of the old Reformed guys, a lot of the Puritans, there's sort of a, sort of a wallowing in sin in the name of humility that, that, I mean, I understand it. I mean, who of us cannot you know, echo with Paul? Wretched man that I am. Of course we can. And that's not a bad place to be. Not to stay there, but to be there from time to time. We all feel that. But some of these guys that you read, there's such an introspection and such an unhealthy evaluation constantly, inwardly, and such a a self-deprecating tone in their writing that you just almost get depressed. And that's... That's not really the essence of humility. It might be a part of it, because you're recognizing who you are as a sinner. But it's not the fundamental essence of humility. The fundamental essence of humility is about knowing who you are. Truly. This is how Jesus could be humbled. Jesus knew who he was. It's having a sound view of yourself. Not thinking of yourself too highly, not thinking of yourself too lowly. C.S. Lewis had a good quote on this that captures this. He says, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. You know, many think that sort of an aw shucks mentality is humble. Like, oh, you know, I just, I'm not much, you know. I don't know much, I could be wrong. You know, all that stuff. Is that really humble? It's not humble, especially if you do know the truth. It's definitely not humble if... If you're good at something and, and you flat out say you're bad, that's just a lie, right? If Diana were to say, oh, I'm not that good at piano, well, that'd be a lie. She's really good at piano. That's not humility, is it? Humility is knowing who you are, fundamentally, who you are. If Jesus went around saying, oh, shucks, you know, I mean, I'm, what am I? Take me or leave me. I could be wrong. I see that's not humility. It'd be tragic if Jesus said that. No, Jesus was humble. This means he knew who he was. He 
was the Son of God and he knew it. But he didn't come into this world to show off, to gain accolades for himself. He didn't need that. He doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need the praise of men. Why? Because he knows who he is. Our praise doesn't change the fact that he's the eternal son. Our praise to him is actually what we need. Jesus was content knowing he was the eternal son. He didn't come saying he was the father or greater than the father. He was content to be the son. He has humility. He's happy to have his role in the Godhead as number two. He comes to save others. Not just other people, not just other neutral parties, but coming to save sinners and enemies. How could he do this? At the utter shame of his own person, the shame of the watching world watching him die there naked and bloody. How could he do this? He can do it because he knows who he is. Jesus didn't need to vindicate his name right there at the cross. He had a massive work to do there for us. The work of the cross to perform, and so he despised the shame, endured the cross. Jesus' humility of his heart keeps his motives always pure to help others. Pride, when it enters in, it just, it just so taints motives. Fundamentally, humility is just, again, truly knowing who you are from God's perspective. You can get off balance by thinking too lowly of yourself as well as thinking too highly of yourself. What does that hymn say? Two wonders that I confess. What? My worth and my unworthiness. You have to have both. We must grasp, Ephesians 2, that we're dead under the wrath of God, dead in sin, Yet we must always remember that if we're in Christ, we're raised with Christ's power. We can do all things in his strength. We are rich beyond measure, loved beyond fathoming. <laughs> you don't see many people win the lottery, the lottery hanging their head after they win. Do you? You don't see that. Very often. That would be an odd news report. Right? Man just wins $2 billion. Can't get him out of his bed. Can't get him out of his tears. That's ridiculous. We are loved beyond measure, brethren. Beyond measure. Rich beyond your wildest dreams because we have God as our God. We can be confident in that relationship. Confident in that standing. It's wonderful. Must recognize we're immense, immensely privileged, and also that all of our power to live this gospel life comes from the Lord. You know, confidence is not incompatible with humility at all. Again, Jesus extremely confident, Paul extremely confident and humble. So, confidence is not incompatible with humility. Humility actually grounds confidence. Knowing who you are actually grounds it. Go into this world being bold as a lion because you know who you are. Another passage highlighting the humility of Jesus is Philippians 2, 
Paul says in addressing a situation there where people are beginning to perhaps nitpick at each other or relationships are strained, perhaps there's some selfishness going on that's keeping tensions sort of high between folks. What does Paul do? But Paul highlights the humility of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, I think starting in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but here's our term here, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's humility. Humility is actually saying, no, you're more important. You are. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to care about you. I'm going to do what you need to minister to you. You know, people can say all the time, well, that's my personality. I don't do this or I don't do that. But humility doesn't think that way. Humility says, what can I do to maximize the faith in the other party? What can I do to maximize the love in the other party? What, 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 what can I do to do that? I, I want to think about your life as more important than my own. Paul says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves. Where was it? Well, it was also in Christ Jesus. And who is this Christ Jesus? Well, he's one who existed in the very form of God. (laughs) The creator himself. The infinite God, self-sufficient, self-existent, infinite God of the universe. He existed in the morphe of God. And he did not regard equality with God a thing to hold on to. He didn't say, you know, as God, I'm not going to hold He didn't say, as God, I'm going to hold on to this and all of those people there can perish in their sin. They don't recognize me. I mean, can't they see who I am? They should recognize me for who I am. No, Jesus, although he had every right to take that particular approach, he did not regard equality with God a thing to hold on to, but he empties himself. And how does he empty himself? Well, certainly not of his deity, right? That's the old heresy. He empties himself by taking the form of a bondservant. He empties himself. He pours himself out. This is actually what it is to be God. God is humble. God is humble at his heart. He pours himself out for others. He's a God who's love. He empties himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Not an earthly king, but a bondservant. Someone who washes people's nasty feet. And being made in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A couple things, you know, you learn about humility in this passage. Number one, again, Jesus had it. Jesus had humility. And Jesus expressed humility. He humbled himself. He had this platform of, of complete supremacy. And he leaves it for others. And this attribute of humility is actually the attribute that was required if our salvation was to be accomplished. He must humble himself, make himself low to submit to the plan of the Father in obedience and submit to the wickedness of men who brutally killed him. 
Jesus accomplished this great work by not holding on to the privileges of his rightful place and position as God. He let it go. And why? Because of our sin. And the fact that it's that sin that kept us from him and him from us. And Paul says that it's King Jesus, the God-man, the eternal Son, willing to divest himself of all the privileges, prerogatives of Godhead, and passively took whips, blows to the face, pulled beard, spit, mockery, nails in the hands, spear in the side, asphyxiation, the wrath of his Father. That's humility. What you see when you see the cross is you see humility. You see humility at its summit. If you can say it that way. It's the Lord Jesus. Humility looks out for the good of others. He was there for others. He was there for our eternal good. Do you claim to be humble? How much do you care about the well-being of others? Is your Christianity a private thing? Just you and God? Humility seeks the exaltation of others. That's what we're saying here, isn't it? That's what we're saying. Humility assumes relationships. You can't be humble on your own. There's nobody being humble just riding down the road in your car. Do you want this trait to be like the Lord Jesus? To put yourself in the background, or as a servant for the good of others. That's humility. Are you humble in heart? That's what Peter calls us to. The lowliness of heart, though, this humility, it does not preclude or negate speaking truth to others. I want to say that. Again, it's not an aw shucks, you know, I could be wrong kind of thing. Now, if you don't know if you're right, <laughs> if you're sneaking suspicion, you could be wrong, you need to own it. But if you're speaking the truth, there's nothing humble about saying that. There's nothing, I mean, Paul, when he comes to the Thessalonians, he says, I came to you not in error. And when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian church and the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, he talks about his humility and he also talks about this reality that he came teaching, preaching, and admonishing. In Acts 20.18, it says there, And when they, that is the elders there in Ephesus, had come to him, to Paul, Paul says to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house. Paul said, I came to you serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Paul has the audacity to say, I was there in humility. Huh. Paul said that. You talk like that? When I was with you the other week at your house, I was with you in humility. Paul says I was. Now, part of this is because when Paul was there, he decided to work with his own hands and to not be a burden on the church. And he provided for the needs of his own men that were with him too, so that he wouldn't be a burden. He made himself a servant for others. And that's part of what he means here. 
He came there not to be some sort of celebrity. He came there to meet their needs, their spiritual needs of truth and the gospel. And these elders needed that. These elders needed Paul with them, selflessly providing for his own needs so that he could provide for their spiritual needs and teaching them and admonishing them. When they had come to them, he said to them, You yourselves know how I was with you, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. And this humility was not something that keeps him from proclaiming to them the truth and admonishing them. And in that same chapter, verse 31, Paul says, Therefore to these elders, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. See, again, humility is not so much about propping yourself up as, you know, um, I'm right, listen to me. He's... It's more, it's, it's, it's more to the tune of love. It's, it's, listen, this is the truth and you need it. Paul wasn't there to make a name for himself. He wasn't proclaiming his own opinion in his own name. He was there in humility looking out for the good of the brethren. And brethren, always remember, always remember that, that the mark of good leadership in the church is men that care for you and tell you the truth. Sometimes it may feel like they're yelling at you when they're really not. It just feels that way because you've become too sensitive. And you don't know how to take admonishment. Paul says, I was with you for three years admonishing each one with tears. I was warning you. No, don't go that way. No, don't go that way. I understand, but don't do that, you know. That, that's, that's, that's Paul. That's good leadership. He's not doing it for himself. He's doing it because he wants you to stay in the fold. He wants you to stay healthy. He wants you to stay on the narrow path. It's no mark of humility to simply think, who am I to correct this other person? That's not a mark of humility. Especially if that person needs the truth. And you need love, but they need the truth. It's no mark of humility to simply bow out. It's actually probably a sign of cowardice. And no love. Wanting to protect your own. So we have to have sound minds about ourselves. We have to think rightly about who we are. Paul says, I'm an apostle. I'm set apart by Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, to shepherd the flock of God. Therefore, I'm going to shepherd And that is absolutely his right to shepherd. And that shepherd comes with admonishment. That shepherd comes with truth. That shepherd comes with tears, humility. And and I don't know if you caught that earlier where Paul says, uh, he says, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. He's with you. A good shepherd knows he wants to be with the people as much as he can. He's not a pastor in his office where you never see him. So, humility. Just some passages here in the New Testament about humility as well. Romans 12, 16. Paul says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Paul gives the recipe for unity with each other, and it's not to be high-minded. 
that person who cannot be taught, <laughs> that person who cannot be spoken to. They are wise in their own estimation. And many of you, if you've read Proverbs, you know that there's someone worse than the fool. And who is that? The one who's wise in their own estimation. Right? There's more hope for a fool than for a man who's wise in their own estimation. That is, they think that they, they are sort of the God's gift of wisdom to the church, and they live that way. Not able to be taught, not able to be approached. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind. But listen, associate with the lowly. Think of that. He doesn't say, but be humble. I mean, it's true, but it's a way of you saying... It, you can tell if a person's prideful by who they're hanging out with at some level. Right? Associate with the lowly. You ever get around people that are inordinately impressed by worldly achievements? You know, they look at certain, a, a person's certain intellect or money status or beauty. And you can just tell that they're really wowed by it. Those kinds of people don't hang out with the lowly, do they? they? Those kinds of people don't hang out with the people that are sort of in the background. Those, as Paul says, that seem more or less presentable. They don't tend to, to hang out with the lowly. Brethren, in, in our church, none of us should be ashamed of associating with anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And I don't care who you are. What if the Lord saved five homeless guys and brought them here next Sunday? Would you seek out their friendship? Would you? Would you have them over? Would you associate with the lowly? There's some apartments back here over off of Franklin Road, I think. I think we've been there before and door-to-door, but... I would hope that if you decide to one day to come and do door-to-door evangelism and you find out that we're going there, that you'd be happy about that. It's a, rough, it's a rough place. But these are people made in God's image. These are people who need the gospel. Have humility. Associate with the lowly. Ephesians 4, Paul says, Therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What is it to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God? It's to be humble. It's to have humility. The way to maintain unity and peace in the body of Christ is lowliness. The quickest way to lose it is pride. Philippians 2.3, as I've already read, I'll read it again. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And let's end with this last passage, 1 Peter 5. You can turn there. 1 Peter 5. This passage is worth reading. Six of the, at least six, seven verses here. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. It's not easy for young men, is it? Young men think they know everything, right? We're zealous. We know the truth. We're going to hold the line. Young men need to recognize we need to be subject to elders. Elders do have wisdom. 
And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Again, that's a, it's about relationships, isn't it? Humility assumes relationships. It's what I talk with guys down at, at Miracle Hill all the time. The guys that I want them to invest in the body of Christ. It's, it's hard to get them to, especially the ones that want to follow the Lord and the ones that you feel like are truly converted, you talk to them about the importance of being a part of a body of Christ and how, listen, you can't read the New Testament without realizing that there's an assumption that all of these character traits happen within a body of believers. None of these things do you do on your own. Be clothing yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? Because God is opposed to the proud. Hear the fundamental uh, warrant or motive or incentive to be humble toward one another is because if you don't, God will stiff arm you. He already said that with husbands, didn't he? Earlier in the letter. You don't, you don't dwell with your wife according to honor, your prayers get blocked. You dwell in with people in pride in the body, you'll be opposed by God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves. Under the mighty hand of God. You hear that? Under. That's the idea of humility. Under. Under what? Under the mighty hand of God. Why? That he may exalt you at the proper time. It's about finally knowing that if you stay under the Lord's sovereign care and protection and a sense that you need him, God will exalt you at his timing. And that exaltation will be something noticeable. It'll be noticeable. People will see the fact that God is using you. But it's because you've kept yourself humble under God's mighty hand, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone whom he may devour. But resist him, firm in faith, knowing that, at the same, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. What does it look like for someone to not clothe themselves with humility when they're with people? What does that look like? Well, they're quick to promote themselves, aren't they? They're quick to talk about themselves a lot. Quick to go on and on about this or that or the other thing that they themselves have done. John says vain glory. Now again, it doesn't mean that you don't talk about what the Lord has done in, with you. That's not what I'm saying. But these are people that are just, they're just always there. Everything's just always about them. They talk about themselves. They rarely let another talk. They rarely say, how are you? And really care and listen and want to know. They're quick to personalize everything. Easily offended because their identity is bound up in what others think of them. This is not humility. Without humility, there's no harmony in the body of Christ and not like-mindedness. Did you notice here in Peter's 
verses here, these statements where he says, God gives grace to the humble. Have you ever thought about that statement? And think, gosh, that sounds like grace is conditional. Have you ever thought about that? He gives grace to the humble? I didn't think you could earn grace. Have you ever thought about that? That's the way I think, anyway. We don't like to think of grace in this way, but Peter says it's given to a certain person. In the Psalms, I wish I could remember it off the top of my head, it says, with the pure you show yourself pure. With the merciful you show yourself merciful. And here it's when you're humble, God gives you grace. There is a cause-effect relationship in the Christian life. There is. It's important to recognize Is this earned grace? Well, no. Think of it. What is humility? It's an open hand, isn't it? It's an open hand. It's it's someone who knows they need. It's an open hand. Humility is found in the one who's crushed in spirit. The humble sinner is the one who knows they are always receiver. God is always giver. It's not that this humility here earns God's grace, so to speak. It's that the humble knows he's lost without it. Think of the proud, this is how I was thinking last night. Think of the proud man as a clenched fist and the man who's humble with an open hand. That's kind of what I think. In other words, there's a sense in which God will only give grace to the humble because the humble want it. And the proud don't. It's not that the humble's worked for anything or earned anything. Matter of fact, the humble says, I can't work unless the Lord provides what he commands. And the proud, on the other hand, has closed his mind and heart, his ears and fists to the Lord. Won't get anything from him but a stiff arm. And then one more thing about humility in this text, that the truly humble person doesn't want glory for himself, but he wants all glory to Jesus, all glory to God. When Peter ends this section here in chapter 5 on humility, he ends with these words, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. When I, when I hear people say they want to make a name for themselves in a particular ministry, it always makes me shudder. You know? We want to make a name for ourselves. Now look, I mean, we, we can certainly want to be a place that is visible because we want Christ to be known. I get that. But not because, not so that we can just pat ourselves on the back and say we're the best church in town. But we really do want to be used. We don't want to be all shucks that we, have, we don't have any clarity or we don't know anything. That's not what we want to say. I think God has given us a lot of clarity. We need to be clear about that. We need to be responsible with it. <laughs> we need to pour it out. Proclaim it. But not to make ourselves a name. To him the dominion forever and ever. To him be the glory forever and ever. And just lastly, in order to be saved, you must humble yourself. Right? The Lord saves those who know they need him. He's not looking for your works. He got all that in Jesus, right? 
He's looking for your humility. He's looking for you being crushed in spirit. He's looking for you to say, I don't have anything. And you've already known that for a long time. And so I need you. That's what it is. Poor in spirit. He's looking for an open hand to receive the glorious gift of pardon. So will you humble yourself? If you don't know Jesus Christ, will you humble yourself before him and stop pretending that you're his? It just takes humility. And, um, and there's, much, there's so much freedom in humility. So much freedom with, with finally getting a grasp on who you are. That delusion is broken. And, um, and the Lord can do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you this morning for the example and the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray that the things that um, you wanted to stick this morning will stick. And Lord, I pray that um, you would use this for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.